right, good people. He's Tim Johnson. I'm Chris Ruddick. We're here for Love of Code, bringing you current events, our experience, and opinionated commentary around all things software. These episodes are brought to you by Prime3 Software, where Tim and I create purpose-built software to supercharge businesses. Tim Johnson, good day to you, sir. What's up, man? I'm going to ask you a question right off the bat. Uh-oh. What percentage of the internet do you believe is consumed while sitting on the toilet? I can't say 50% because I know, uh, well, I mean, maybe. Netflix chews up a lot. I'm not watching a movie in there. I, I, Dude, I find myself grabbing my phone all the time. I'm like, oh, what's on YouTube? So what's new in the news? I just read an article that Walmart's converting their going to be converting their pop, their parking lots to pop-up drive, drive-in theaters for the summer. They've got 160 Walmart parking lots looking to do this. I'm not saying I'm a genius, but I might be a genius. I called this. This is on record. I, I made a video on uh, LinkedIn back in March that Walmart was going to pivot. They were going to reduce their store size so that it's more of a forward staged warehouse. And uh, curbside pickup is going to be a, a much larger facet of what they do going forward. And then each of these, they, they, they would pivot the, uh, the workforce so you'd have... Um, you know, I think they said that I don't know the exact statistic. Something like eighty percent of the U.S. population is within an hour's drive of a Walmart. So that's not surprising. So they they if if every one of these giant mega stores now serves as a four stage warehouse, your workforce now becomes your delivery force, and they're just solving for the last mile. And you also have a giant parking apparatus that you can use to, to bring people in curbside deliver and keep on going. I think that's really going to be the pivot for, for a lot of businesses going forward. All these vacant shopping malls, they're all going to become warehouse space. Mark my words. Yeah. That's yeah. I hadn't considered, I hadn't considered that. I mean, that's a, um, e-commerce has really come into its own and filling a void where you used to have to go in and like, try something on, decide it. Now you just order it, drive up, they throw it in the trunk, you go home. Oh, this didn't work out. I'll just drop by and drop it off again tomorrow because I'll know I'll be going there for something else or they'll come pick it up. I think that's, that's. Um, I think we're going to see a much tighter integration between online shopping for groceries, be it for um, uh, online restaurant, um, Uber Eats and all the uh, the other Grub, what do they call it? Grubhub. Grubhub. Um, DoorDash. Yeah. I mean, we, we've made a rapid pivot and, and tech has, has had a, a heavy hand in it. And I think this is only the, uh, the first, first, uh, first of the innovations that we're going to see. Um, another news thing I saw was, uh, that the U S Democrats are, um, putting forth a bill to expand. They just sound like a baseball team. U- what? U.S. The Democrats. US Democrats. <laughs> um, now starting in left field. That they're uh, that they're, they're trying to pass a bill for ten or excuse me, a hundred billion dollars U.S. wide fiber fiber broadband because of what Elon Musk is going to do with Starlink. Man, man, they're listening to the show. I'm uh, telling you. Yeah, that's got to be. I'm telling you. Nothing like a little bit of competition to 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 uh, to bring about some some innovation. How many hundred billion? Hundred billion. Hope That's to pass awesome. the Accessible Affordable Internet for All Act. 
brilliant. Which I hope it happens. I was like, wow, those are pretty much your exact words. Um, I hope it happens. Go, go look. I, I think know, our one of our very early podcasts, <laughs> we talked about this. If they do it right, you know, it's it's really ends up just being a subsidy to locality. So uh, some think, some terms that they they're looking to yeah. level out would be minimum speeds, which would be a hundred megabits, which is decent. Current currently the uh, definition of broadband is twenty five megabits uh, uh, down and three up. This would be a hundred down and twenty five up. That would be the minimum. What do you know comparatively? What like a two G or a three G network would um, would be running at? Um, I think three G is that speed. Okay, maybe I mean, slow. Just, no, no, three uh, G might be five megabits down yeah, I think and it's, I think it's one slower. and a half up or something like that. So, I mean, that would be that would be pretty amazing. Yeah, I, I I'm certain that there's uh, there's more complication than just plugging it in. Um, oh no doubt. No so, doubt. I mean, you're gonna have you know. That there are people. Uh, I was listening to a, a, a podcast yesterday about um, some of the tribal lands where people have to drive for an hour to get to their mailbox. That's nuts. So what are we going to do for them? You know, like <laughs> so maybe that's where Elon fills fills the gap. And and I think um, you know maybe they should explore maybe some public private partnerships. To, to provide access in these extreme areas where, you know, running a mile or an hour's worth of, of conduit might not be feasible. Um, what is old Elon up to nowadays? If they, have they started testing the Starlink yet? Um, yeah, I think they've already had preliminary tests. Um, I don't remember all the details. Um, but I know some, something's out there already. I saw he's celebrating today because uh, Tesla is now the number one auto manufacturer in the world. So that's pretty awesome. I've, I've been a, a, a Tesla fanboy since since really they were still in research and development. I'm, I'm really impressed with uh, with how that company, maybe not how well it's been run, but with definitely with the innovation and and the, the attitude around shaking up the, the business. It's kind of funny because I believe the fact their first factory uh, was a former Toyota factory um, out in, I think it's Fairmont, California or something like that. Um, And then, and then, so this last one was uh, that Google is making a competitor to airdrop called nearby share. And it's in beta right now that you can uh, airdrop. So you can, you can like you and I can share a photo with you like if we were sitting in the same office or something like that, I can send you a picture or send you a contact or a file or anything like that. So we talked briefly, we touched briefly on standards a second ago. Um, today we wanted to get into talking about um, why standards are a good thing. And we'll focus mostly on um, API standards. So, it's kind of a heady topic, but uh, we're gonna we, we've talked about APIs before, and um, we're gonna talk about APIs a lot because APIs are really the uh, the the communication channel from system to system uh, that basically can drive um, can can drive uh, one computer to the next. So. Um, Oftentimes you'll see, 
how, how how's the best way to frame this? The everything that we do derives from an API. So all the information that you see on the screen on a website all feeds to an API. All the information that you see from a phone app drives from the API. Same for the tablet, so on and so forth. API is the central point for accessing information on one of our systems. And we're of the opinion that the user interface on top of that is immaterial. You can switch out the UI with a new shinier UI and uh, under the covers, the API remains unchanged. Um, we start with APIs uh, because oftentimes we find that you might not necessarily want to access data as a person through a website. Oftentimes you might have a business system that needs to talk to our business system without putting a person in the loop. And that creates a ton of flexibility and efficiency and productivity by uh, inter-system communication via APIs. So where do where did APIs really come from and, and what's the importance around them? Um, I'll, I'll, they, they kind of have, uh, <laughs> they have a long and a short history. We'll just do the short history today to keep it brief. Um, there was web service description language, WSDLs. Those are Tim's favorite because, <laughs> because uh, it's, it's written in XML. And, uh, um, they, they, they came into Vogue and quickly fell out of Vogue because working with XML, while it's a structured language, it's hard to work with. Uh, they were superseded by RESTful APIs, which, um, are still the reigning champion. That's what we prefer to use. And we prefer to exchange, um, data using the json format that's j-s-o-n that's the jobs javascript um notation or object notation for describing data so um json works really well with computers and it also as a side benefit um it works really good when humans are reading it because inevitably your developers are gonna have to uh, be able to look at a, a json and, and be able to is figure out what's going on here. If it was uh, encoded, that makes it a lot more difficult for for developers to do integration. Well, so let me let me jump in here real quick. Um, yeah. So, so um, I th I think one of the, one of the main reasons uh, JSON came to came to power, as it were, was because um, at the time a lot of um, a lot of the industry was doing these web services. Uh, using the uh, web browser so um, and they had to have this communication this translation layer to go from XML to JavaScript back and forth and so JSON uh, came to be Doug Crockford actually came up with it and kind of chuckle you know every time I say it I list I, I remember a talk that he gave because he was he was at the time suggesting to use um, uh, JavaScript objects to pass data back and forth, but the company he was he was contracted for, they're like, oh well, we only we're only interested in using standards. So he's like, but it's a it's a JavaScript object that it I mean it's a thing. 
and they're like, oh no. So he, he took 20, I think he said it took him 30 minutes to write the standard. And he's like, it's just JavaScript. And so now Jason, that, that birthed JSON. So he created JSON as a, as a, because somebody else was like, Hey, we need it to be a standard. So he made the standard, but he still begrudgingly did it because he's like, it's just JavaScript, but that's the point. Um, and I think that's that's why it's became popular is because now you don't have to have that translation layer to go back and forth between XML. You send and receive JavaScript objects, and what and you know they they already come pre-parsed. Um, and there there are some pitfalls with that. I mean, the JavaScript is fairly forgiving, whereas some of your higher order languages um, are going to have a hard time modeling that in in like a java or a in a c sharp um even a python that um because the 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 uh the javascript language um allows you to do some dynamic typing and things that um that you can't do in a higher order language so uh it's 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 not it's not without flaws but it's a heck of a lot better than than anything that's preceded it uh graphql came out uh recently like within past uh five years it really came into prominence uh it still has a has a pretty significant place in 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 terms of the power that 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 provides uh to directly access data through your api um and it, and it is a structured language in in the same way that json is we're not really going to get into that today and then um, um even more recently uh grpc uh, came about, which um, the G stands for GRPC. You got to love that. Uh, can't say that computer science people don't have a, a sense of humor. <laughs> GRPC is, um, is uh, I call it global uh, RPC. Uh, it's designed, RPC means remote procedure call. We used to use it for, um, you, it would allow you to um, call different segments of your, your program um remotely so if i wrote a java application i could give tim a uh the other half of that java application and i could call the the application piece that tim had directly from the application that i had and it would just be backboned by um by you know by the internet by tcp um but you ran into all sorts of problems, you know, using the Java example, uh, if Tim had Java 11 and I had Java seven, um, that could cause complications. If he had a newer version of the application and I had an older version that could cause problems. Um, if Tim had .NET and I had Java, that would cause a lot of problems. GRPC is designed to, uh, help you bridge the gap between languages. So now I can call, um, I can call a segment of Tim's code, even though his code is written in a completely different language and gRPC bridges the gap between those two things. Um, it's only been around for about five years at this point, um, but it's showing a lot of promise in, 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 in the power that it provides. I see gRPC being used uh, maybe under the covers. So uh, if I have a bunch of servers running and I need to do some inter-process communication, I would see gRPC scratching that itch. But in terms of the public-facing APIs that, that we're really talking about today, um, I'm going all REST because that's um, that's the most widely accepted and, and um, powerful APIs of the day. 
Yeah, just before anybody gets triggered by the fact that we say rest, um, you know, to be truly restful, we we are not necessarily um, going to be the uh, uh, what's the right um, we're not um, zealots on, on yeah. restful. I mean, the whole idea behind uh, restful, you guys can uh, look it up at your leisure. I think the guy's name is Fleming that came up with it as a as a. Uh, uh, a thesis uh, document, whatever you smart guys do when you get your PhDs and masters. Um, yeah. Who are, these, who are these smart guys? Yeah. So uh, he came up with that as a, as a communication, a way to do, to use HTTP uh, verbs to send and receive data. So you get your get, your post, your put, delete and patch. And, and basically you can do everything you want to do. Um, that you need to do without these RPCs, these remote procedure calls, and you're you're using, as Chris, you know, alluded to in the beginning, a standard. Um, you don't have to guess what a get does. You know, if you follow the standard, a get is going to retrieve data. Um, a put is going to send data, and a post can do both. Um, but arguably, <laughs> it should only do one, and that's where the zealotry comes in about what's the right what's the right answer for these kinds of things. Um, so that's, yep. I, I just wanted to make sure nobody was like, well, it's not really rest if you're doing <laughs> da, 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 da. Cause you know, we rarely use internal linking. Um, I had a long discussion with a developer that kind of introduced me to uh, restful APIs and um, I read, uh, read an article that said really the ultimate uh, restful language to use is X HTML. And now the, the, the reason being is because your web browser already understands HTML and X HTML is, is a, what is that, a superset of, yeah. of HTML. So mm -hmm. you get the idea of you can have forms, you can have inputs. Like if you think of anything that's a tag, that's, that's XML. And so you could literally just from doing a get without any, um, without any UI tweaks or anything like that, you could literally build a restful API that, that would, that it was a, it was a full, I think they have them in five tiers. It would be a tier five where you show it where you came from. Like basically everything you can do uh, is represented on the page per request. Um, and so that, that language, the preferred or the language that services all those needs would be XHTML. Um, so it's kind of funny that JSON is kind of prevalent right now. Um, but again, I think the reason JSON is is because you don't have to have that translation layer in between. Right. And who's going to just render up XHTML so it can be rendered raw with no CSS and no nothing. But imagine the possibilities if that was if, if that was the case. I don't know. I, I fall on the other side where I, I don't like, uh, I like my my UIs to be responsible for UI stuff. And I like my servers to be responsible for server stuff and never the two shall meet. So my API is really the, the dividing layer between, between these two worlds. Uh, but let's, let's take a step way, way back. Um, and I'll clarify a term rest means representational state transfer. Um, it's, designed to have a very small set of operations. Like Tim mentioned, you have create, delete, put, post. Um, 
it, it and it's designed to um, serve up data in a stateless form. So I think that's important too, is to talk about um, why why you would want a stateless API on top of your data and what the benefit is for for building APIs because we still get questions about um, you know why why. I, you know, I kind of understand the API, but why do I need one? You know, and, 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 um, I, I get that a lot from businesses, but I also, uh, you know, for, 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 um, newer programmers, I think it's important to understand, um, you know, what, what an API does for you and, and why separating the concerns and making, um, making your data available, outside of your your um outside of your um applications why that why that's important so let's talk about um let's talk about building applications right so if tim has an application and i have an application and we want to meet in the middle we can certainly do that right he can he can um he can write a, a, some sort of protocol and I can accept that protocol and we just have to agree on what that needs to be, right? So, um, Tim, what kind of service are you writing? Oh, now you're gonna put me on the spot. Um, awesome, uh, map service. All right, so Tim's writing a map service, right? And I'm writing a, um, a directions service, right? So I need to retrieve maps from Tim. So we obviously had to pick a very complicated one here because uh, <laughs> this because is not pre-rehearsed. No. So. <laughs> here you go. Get the best uh, uh, Chuck Norris quotes. Okay. So Tim's going <laughs> to, or the Tim jokes. Is gonna, Tim is going to uh, write a service. that's going to give me Chuck Norris jokes and I'm going to, uh, I'm going to build a, uh, a, a, a webpage that, um, picks jokes from around the internet and puts them up on, up onto uh, a, a, a dashboard. So I've got great dad jokes from across the internet. All right. This is a million dollar idea. Somebody write this down. So Tim and I can discuss, Hey Tim, you know, like I, what do I need to do to get one of your dad jokes? And he would say, Oh, just call my function. Um, call, call Chuck Norris jokes. So I call Chuck Norris jokes and what do I send it? And he says, Oh, just, uh, just send me the line joke of the day. And when I see joke of the day, I'm going to send you back um, a bunch of text. That's going to be the joke. Okay, cool. So now we have built a protocol between our two services. Now there's issues with this protocol. Um, number one, it's a very um, tightly integrated set of systems, right? My system is built explicitly to Tim's system and Tim's system is built very tightly to mine. Now, what if Tim wants to change what gets returned by his, by his service? What if, um, what if I want to get yesterday's joke? Do I have any options to do that? Well, no, now we have to negotiate a brand new terms of service, right? So Tim, what, how do I get yesterday's joke? Oh, well, um, send me the line yesterday's joke, and then I'll send you back yesterday's joke. Well, how do I know that you're sending me yesterday's joke? Is there a date stamp on that? No. Now we need to renegotiate what gets returned by his service, right? So I'm going pretty fast. 
I would not only have to get back from Tim his um, the joke, but I also have to get back the date that the joke was was published. So now I've got to go in and redesign my entire application to accept this new format. And Tim has to redesign his application to accept this new format, right? So now Tim and I, we've got a great joke uh, client service going, but now I want to get jokes from a service from another buddy of ours, right? Well, he has a completely different protocol set up. So now I have to have that same set of negotiations with him to figure out how to get jokes from his service. Now, if somebody else wants to come along and, and, and get jokes from Tim's service, he has to have a brand new set of negotiations with them. Maybe he has to write a brand new service to accept exactly what you can see where this is going. This is a lot of work on both ends of the programming spectrum, right? The client has to work extra hard to, to figure out the exact dance and the, the server has to figure out exactly the same steps in reverse on how to, to make this connection and exchange data. And that's where software becomes really expensive. And all we're really trying to do is just exchange data between our systems. And that's where standards come in. While you're talking about that, I found the Chuck Norris facts thing. <laughs> And some of these, I, they're obviously dad jokes too, but uh, Chuck Norris can kill two stones with one bird. Uh, Chuck Norris got the coronavirus. Now the coronavirus is in isolation. Chuck Norris can kill your imaginary friends. Oh, gosh. Uh, Chuck Norris is awesome. I actually met the dude uh, twice, actually. Oh, wow. I used to do the Chuck Norris Dodge karate ball. stuff. Dodgeball championship. Uh, was he in that? Oh, come on. He was one of the judges. I think I've seen dodgeball once, man. I'll, I'll remember that about that is a uh, rip torn throwing wrenches and stuff at them to make them dodge. Um, death had a near Chuck Norris experience. That's right. So what, what is the alternative that I have to, to building these very tightly aligned systems? is um is it starts with with tim's chuck norris service we would want to design an api that's an uh, that's a protocol that everybody can use so we like to use rest because i know that um if if i'm seeking information i know i'm going to use the same kind of call every single time i'm going to use a get call to get information from Tim's service. Tim is going to design his service in a way that makes it easy for me to get information. So he's going to have uh, a, an endpoint available that's going to be like his Chuck Norris jokes. And then based on the type of request I make, um, he's going to return a payload of requests back to me. And now because he's written it in a standard way using a standard format, his job is done. He doesn't have to go back and retouch anything unless he starts adding new functionality to it. For me, I can now assume because he's using standards that I'm going to build to a, um, a, a standards based web service that, um, 
follows some of the accepted patterns around protocols. Now, here's the trick around APIs. There isn't a set standard for how an, a RESTful API should be formed, right? So that seems to run counter to what we talked about before. There, there are standards for REST. We talked about that. Get, put, post, delete. Patch is another another one that I've only used a couple times, but but those are all those are standard RESTful functions. But there's no standard for how the RESTful um, service should be formed. So um, Tim's API might uh, have a URL that ends with slash Chuck jokes, and then it might accept a request parameter that is the current date. And now his service returns me back a payload that he's defined. So there's a lot of flexibility in how you implement the APIs, but as long as you're staying within the construct of REST, um, anybody who's trying to integrate with your service is uh, playing on the same sheet of music. Yeah, and that's where I think a lot of people get gets, uh in the weeds that um well one thing i would i think people would argue that rest or restful is not necessarily a standard it was a thesis document um but it's kind of an understood and that's where that you know i've had arguments with 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 several people um in the past about what what is an actual standard now is it something that has a standards body you know and there's you know everybody has to come together to come up with something that gets published and this is the standard or is it more of a general understanding that nine times out of 10, something is done this way. Um, for, you know, a, an example that I routinely come back to, uh, with regards to standards is, um, in my career, um, spring has been a standard library that all Java developers use. Um, and I, and, you know, I would call that the standard. Well, the people who write Java, who the, the actual like programming language and stuff would argue, oh no, they don't have a standard body. They don't have a group. There's no people that are, you know, voting yay or nay on, on whether or not this is good or, and all that other stuff. Um, but that would be their definition of a standard. So some of these things can be subject to interpretation. Um, but if you follow what, what we would consider the general kind of 90, 90% accepted vocabularies for rest, um, you know, get put po uh, post delete and patch, you're gonna, <clears throat> you're gonna have a general idea of what you're going to get back. Um, and if you follow those guidelines, you should be able to talk to somebody else about what those things are going to be as well. So, yeah, I think the, the beauty of, of standards is also the, the accessibility, right? So what do you um, mean? Well, I've worked with web services in the past that, um, are written using proprietary protocols. So, uh, the only way that you could be a client of that web service is to use the same technology on both sides of the service. So while it 
appears to be standards based, the standard is locked down to a certain implementation. And that really erodes the purpose of, of having an API. The, the, the notion being you want to be able to, um, you want anyone to be a client of your application. Now that could be you know, a web page, that could be a mobile phone, that could be another system written in any language that could feasibly support making a web service call. We make web service calls using um, like the Chrome browser. We, we make web service calls from the command line using a curl command. So anyone should be able to be a client of your web service without having to be locked into a specific technology. And that's where um, you have to be kind of selective around uh, the, the, the standards that you're choosing to implement. But I think in general, uh, we, we, we seek out standards that are open and available to all. And that's why, um, you know, we see a lot of value in, in, in using restful services and using, uh, JSON payloads. Yeah. And even, you know, to even drill into further, to drill further into that, you know, there's standards within rest mm -hmm. that, um, you know, you can kind of, so, you know, rest didn't necessarily describe every way a single, a specific data type should be what, you know, linking is supposed to look like how that things get solved. So, I mean, some of this stuff is still kind of up in the air. There is a standards group that talks about uh, restful JSON. Um, and man, I, I'm struggling to remember what that is. Um, but they're trying to come up with a, with a standard that would allow someone to understand like, Oh, if I want to add a link to, the next object or something like that i can i here's the here's the accepted standards to providing a link um and i say that because i've seen implementations that have the follow-on link like embedded in the header um i've seen them also created a, an actual uh self-ref tag or something like that as a as part of the payload um uh so i mean there's several different ways to to solve some of these some of these things once you actually drill down into restful that um you know still need to get ironed out but for yeah, the, i think go ahead the, i in my mind i think about it as uh one of these like boxes from the post office where you know if it ships it fits right so 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 rest is the box and whatever you put in the box is up to you but you know on the outside of the box you need uh, that it's going to be a certain dimension. You're going to have a certain address that you're going to put on it. And you know, uh, it's going to be shipped there, um, by ground transportation and then everything else, whatever's in the box that, you know, that's up to you. Uh, you know, and maybe whoever receives that package there, there might be, uh, an expectation that you've worked out with them on what might get returned. I sent you some stuff in the box. I expect you to send me some stuff back in another box. But what's in the box, that's up to you and I to decide, you know, what that needs to be. And that's really where the the true API design starts to come into things. So let's touch on that real briefly because there's a, a the, 
we, we couldn't do that enough service if we had 10 hours to talk about this topic, but there are certain patterns that you, you really want to look to try to follow when you're building out an API design uh, from, from a server side perspective. Uh, first and foremost, I would never accept um, a database ID from outside of my organization. Uh, if, and, and what I'm saying by that is if, um, if you are as part of the payload that you are sending to my web service is a, a database ID to a, a record within my database, that's a big security hole. So I never let anyone specify to me any kind of database IDs in, within my API payload itself. Yeah, and so from a security perspective, the the downside of of providing the actual database ID um, would be, you know, if I send you back ID six, well, I can now go seven, eight, nine, ten. You know, I could basically navigate your database if you give me those IDs. Um, some workarounds from that is one: don't provide that, <laughs> or do some type of UUID or things of that nature to obfuscate. Uh, that. I would also, I would also say from a security perspective, I would never rely on somebody to tell me who they are or what time they did something. So, uh, if Tim sends me a message and he says, "Hey, uh, this is uh, created by Tim at at uh, five o'clock in the afternoon," I don't trust that. What I'm going to do is look to, uh, well, I'm going to have a security layer, which is you know a, a must-have in in today's. Uh, computing world. I'm going to have a security layer that's going to tell me exactly who made the request and the time they made the request. I don't need that to be included in the payload. Yeah, exactly. Um, structuring of data. Uh, there is a camp of people who just make everything strings. And, and uh, when I say string, I mean just text. Everything is raw text. And it's up to the service to, I guess, figure that out. But the, the whole purpose of, of an API is to use typed data. So if the service now has to go in and turn all the, the strings, the, 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 the text that says one, two, three, four, five into the number one, two, three, four, five, um, a couple of issues there. One, uh, security issues, right? So somebody could put a bad payload in there. I'm expecting a number in this field and you put in abracadabra, my system doesn't know how to interpret that. So either uh, I'm going to get a failure when I'm converting, or I'm going to get a failure when I'm trying to store it into like a database record or, or, or work with that data. And now I've got a, an internal failure based on the information that came across that could easily have been solved by just using typed data. Yeah, you get the benefit of a lot of tools, you know, especially in Java, will do the, uh, will try and do the the typing up front and won't actually make it into your service call because you've passed in letters into a number field and it will automatically get kicked out as a bad formatted message. Um, so you get a lot of those benefits, uh, making sure the data type is, a representational we also see um i don't know why this keeps happening but uh date and time formats is is uh seems to be a bone of contention uh 
for whatever reason, people want to just send across uh, the text of a date string. And, you know, it might just say uh, 2020 slash 05 slash 10. Well, I don't know what that means. And neither does the client. When we say, um, what did I say? 05 slash 10? Is that, are we talking year, month, date? Are we talking year, date, month? When, when you use typed data, you strip away some of the ambiguity around what's coming across as a string. And now you don't have to force your client to format to, um, to, to a, a specific daytime format that you expect. And, um, conversely, uh, it eliminates errors that they might introduce by using the wrong format. So, use strongly use use please 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 use strongly typed payloads when you when you're designing your api so it's iso 6801 uh is the right one <laughs> and if anybody wants to argue i'll, I'll give you chris's email address <laughs> <laughs> another thing like uh think about time zones um you know Tim and I are in the same time zone, but what if his service was um, on the other side of the world? You know, maybe he's over and uh, watching Korean baseball and, and that's where that's his local time zone. Well, if I say, give me today's joke, well, today's joke might be tomorrow for yep. me. So um, use, use a format that is going to be globally accepted um, universal time code is is uh is is a real easy way to solve that problem and then um it's easy for me as the requester to convert to universal time code my time to universal time code and it's easy for for tim's service as the server side to interpret that as well well it's built into the client so i mean think of think of um utc time as a common it's a common time for everybody um and so if i have a timestamp that i'm trying to save something um you know, for example, we're, we do a lot of uh, uh, transportation logistics stuff. They want to know, hey, when did this thing ship? Well, if I store it uh, as Eastern Standard U.S. time, what what time is that in, in China where I'm, I'm actually interested in it or vice yeah, versa? We got, we got a request about that uh, a couple months ago. And um, they the, the customer is receiving um, a time on a delivery time in from a data stream that they're getting, but there's no time zone. So they don't know who, who they, um, that what they're having to do is look up the customer's site by zip code to determine what time zone they're in to then correct the times that they're receiving through their data stream. And they're making and an could, assumption of what that time is on the data stream. Right. So that could have easily been solved within the API itself by just using a standardized time zone. And I can tell you uh, from a, from, from my experience, time zones, dates and times, those take a large amount of effort to get right. Once, once you don't use UTC time, um, there's a lot that goes into it because you know, there's, there's several countries. Well, like Arizona doesn't, doesn't Arizona. utilize, uh, daylight savings time you've got uh, other countries i think uh, there's a couple uh i don't know what they're considered 
provinces or whatever in um, India that are 15 minutes off of. So if it's, you know, if it's 430, you know, your time, it's 445 their time, for example. Um, so, I mean, time's a very tricky, complicated um, entity. So if you can have a standard time that's agreed upon, you know, UTC time is, I think I would advocate, is the best one to use. Yeah, and as a developer and a maintainer of a of service, you'd much rather spend your time solving, you know, business problems than you would trying to geo rectify times with because the signature of of your service introduced this problem. So save yourself some headaches, save your your customers some time to um, by by just you know thinking this through before you before you uh, implement. Yeah, and I don't know if you're going to get to it, but I'll just mention that. You know, when yeah, it comes please. to when it comes to making, when it comes to com- developing these these APIs um, and using some of these internal standards, um, you have to give it a lot of thought because you don't know who's going to use your your um, services down the road. And yeah, if you bump true. into one of these date bugs, or what would be considered a date bug, where where everything you've you haven't taken time zone into factor, and you're just like, hey, it's ten o'clock, ten o'clock daylight savings time easter standard like what what 10 o'clock of what oh crap now i gotta change it but you've been accepting you know meanwhile your api has been accepting all these inbound requests and now your times are all messed up and you potentially now have corrupted data because you don't have a time zone uh recorded um, or haven't made that a part of your your standard or your contract so we talked about fear-driven development uh not too long ago and you know trust me this is after you've had this pain, you will you will develop this into your solutions in the future because it's it's is definitely one uh, one issue that uh, comes up over and over and over again. Um, now, generally, the workaround is well, you just version up your API, and now API number two true. Um, now supports UTC time. But you know, how do you force the other people not to use the other API? And what you know, maybe it's been out for a year. And now you've introduced this new thing. So some of these, some of these require you to have some thought up front, um, and have some considerable, you know, just not whip it out there because, um, I, I don't know that Chris has used the term contract. This is effectively an outward facing contract of services you provide. So imagine, um, having to change that, con- you know, if you entered a contract with somebody, how difficult is it going to be to get that contract changed or amended? It's not just, hey, can we just sign off on this? Oftentimes it's not. You got to get lawyers involved and everything else and renegotiation, blah, blah, blah. So it, it becomes problematic to, you know, if you get your API wrong. Um, yeah. And, and and to that point as well, um, you, you know, we, we talked about, oh, uh, you know, it's just 10 o'clock. You know, it really doesn't matter that much. It's just, you know, some internal thing that we don't really use that much. We just capture that piece of data. But you don't know how long these systems are going to be around. You know, you might throw away, you might write a throwaway service in your opinion that it's just a, a stopgap um, to, to help a, a client out. And the next thing you know, this is the system of record for the next 15 years. And the, the, the piece of data that, you know, that you thought was inconsequential is now the, the heartbeat of the whole system. And now we, we can't live without this, this, this time field well, what, what, what time zone is it? Well, I have no idea. Cause that wasn't really part of the original design. Save yourself with, uh, 
save yourself a lot of future heartache by really taking a long, uh, critical look at, at this contract that you're developing, because this is the, this is truly to Tim's point, this is truly a contract of the service that services that you are providing, uh, just the same as, um, as, uh, if you were a cell phone provider, you, you know, you, you are guaranteeing a, um, a certain expectation for, for clients of your service. So you gotta, you gotta uphold that. Yeah. Um, another thing I was thinking as you were talking is, um, how about paging paging still one of those things that no one has a, a, a definitive answer on. Um, I, I think I've seen stuff in the headers and I've seen it provided as links. Um, and then what those links are, that's all. I think that, that, um, that comes into something called Hadios, like how to, how to support that. Yeah. And that one's not Hadios isn't terribly broadly accepted across industry at this point, but I would, I would say, um, in the same vein of saving yourself some future headaches, um, try to implement paging wherever you can. Uh, and, and, and what do I mean when I'm saying paging? Well, you'll see this, um, you'll see this pretty, broadly across the internet this is a page of results so like if i'm looking at um you know a company's website and i want to see um all show me all the long sleeve men's shirts i'm going to get the first 20 results and then i got a page to the next 20 results the page sizes may vary you know good uh good services provide variable page sizes but in general my API, an API that I write, I'm not going to give you every shirt because that's very taxing on my system. And let's, let's pretend, you know, going back to what we talked about earlier, assume the worst when it comes to who's going to be using your services, assume the worst that you assume everyone has bad intent and they're all idiots because they're going to do the dumbest things. And you're, you're, you want to have a bulletproof API that is resilient enough to, to kind of handle uh, all these malcontents who are out there. So if I, if I have a service that will provide you every single record in my database, and then that gets requested a thousand times a second, my server is probably going to max out pretty quickly. And now we have a denial of service on my, on web service API. Yeah. Um, you know, another example, Google. Google had, uh, I just ran a query and it said it, it looked at, uh, I had about 2.8 billion with a B, uh, results. I got the first 10. <laughs> so, um, yeah, that's generally a, 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 a good practice, a best practice that, you know, don't, don't let everything come back. That's going to save your system. And honestly, um, a, it's going to help your clients out as well because they probably couldn't handle all the data that you could throw back at them anyways, or they might want to reconsider their use case for, for how they're interacting with your services. Yeah. Make sure you build that, that functionality up front. Again, that contract being the, the thing you want to be, uh, that, that that's, the, that's your long lasting thing. So if you build it in up front, you don't have to introduce it later on. You know, whether you use it or not, that's immaterial. Um, but you can at least have that as part of your results uh, when you do have something come back. What else? Um, date's my biggest thing. 
camel case or snake case? Um, I think we have to define those. So the snake case would be um, in the URL of my web service or even in, in the payload of my web service. The, the words I use to identify pieces of data, say I um, will use Chuck Norris, for example, right? So if I had a Chuck Norris service, a snake case would be all lowercase. It would be Chuck underscore Norris, all lowercase words. A camel case would be lowercase Chuck, no space, no underscore, capital N, Norris. So effectively, we're talking about the same thing. It's just a different way to identify things. Yeah, um, I, I need to include that back to back to like there's no accepted standard. You know, this isn't something that's defined. This really comes down to, um, you know, what the developer prefers. Now, I did see that there was a study that said that snake case is 20 percent easier to read. But again, most times APIs are being read by computers anyway. So uh, the tooling, Tim mentioned uh, Spring that we're huge fans of, it's, it, it can accept either case. Um, it really boils down to personal preference. We we prefer to use Camel case um, mostly because it it's already conforms to the to JavaScript right. object notation that we're already going to be familiar with, and otherwise you, now you got to translate them back and forth and blah blah blah. And you know, fair point. They are typically computers reading these things. I like camel case because it's harder for me to hit the underscore. <laughs> I mean, when really, when we're talking about typing out uh, the name of a field, it's it's just, it's just harder for me to type that than it is to just to write it in camel case. Um, I guess we should talk touch on um, the RESTful response codes because there's um, there's a lot of nuance there, particularly in the 200s and the 400s. Um, so like, let's talk about a 200. A, a, uh, when, you, when you make any request to the internet, you're going to get a, 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 a three-digit three, um, three response code back that indicates what happened on the server side. An HTTP response 200 means everything's okay. We got your, your, um, we got your request, and here's your response. A, help me out now. A 201. So 201 is not accepted, nope. but what is that? Created. Created. So a 201 indicates um, that you uh, you posted a record to the service and a record was created as a result. So think a, of an insert statement to a database. Yeah. A two, what's the accepted one? 202. Two? 202 means... Got your message, still working on it, but everything looked okay. That's the accepted. So that means um, it's not done processing yet, where, whereas a 201 indicates that you know, everything was has been completed successfully. 202 means that it's still working on it, but the request you made looked good, and uh, we don't see any reason why this would fail. Let's get into the fours. So 400... Well, before you do that, there's a 204, which is no content. And we typically use those when you do a delete. Um, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, yeah, good. Uh, 400s. Yeah, 400 is a bad request. 400 is a bad request. That means um, you, uh, one of your fields is misnamed. Maybe you put a string in when we were accepting a date. 
Uh, it could be any number of, of, of reasons why um, your request was rejected by, by, the, uh, by the API itself. Yeah, uh, 401 is unauthorized. Is it unauthorized yeah. or is it, uh, well, it was 403. Forbidden. Forbidden, okay, so what's the difference? So unauthorized is gonna be that you don't have an authentication header or you're just not, um, you don't have, you don't, basically you don't have the right authentication to, to get in. Uh, forbidden is right. gonna be, you might be authenticated but you don't have permission to see, you, you know, you can't empty out the bank account. That's a fair distinction that, that uh, a lot of people get caught up in. Yep, and then you got 404, page not found. Page not found. That's the that's between 404 and the five the dreaded 500 error. Those are the ones that you're gonna um, bump into the most as as a developer building to a web API. 404 not found means we can't we don't know this this endpoint that you're trying to 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 reach, and 500 means that you got to it and something failed under the covers. Um, and that's when you need to start talking to the service provider and, and finding out, well, what, what crashed that you didn't tell me about? Yeah. And sometimes, um, you know, to go back to 404, um, you know, I don't know that anybody's solidified on the, the right, the, the right answer, uh, for that. So you can think of a 404 as I wanted to get to a resource, um, you know, say I wanted to get to somebody's, um, employee record or something and, and I've, I've fat figuring the name or something like that. And so I go to call the API and it's like, Hey, go look up Chris's information. But I spelled Chris with a K and it's like, Hey, I don't, I don't know who Chris is. Should that return a 400 or excuse me, a 404 or should that re just return an empty object? Um, I, I think sometimes I lean to the 404, but I, I mean, I can, can be convinced <laughs> to return an empty object. I don't, and that, that again, back to this, all boils down to your implementation. You can see that the that APIs have, um, you know, they are truly um, uh, up to up to your making. So you can you you have a lot of latitude to to determine, you know, what the signature of of your web contract needs to be, um, and and they shouldn't really be entered in too lightly. Um, but they are extremely, extremely powerful. And um, I think that every business should be looking to expose their APIs to the, to the broader world. I've said it numerous times that, um, you know, that going forward, uh, the exchange of data, uh, particularly between systems, is really what's going to power the uh, the information exchange of the of the internet and and uh, and our future. Yeah, one thing I think that um, I, I'm not sure was mentioned, but in the vein of trying to to have interfaces to everything, you know, the closer you the closer you step you stay to an accepted standard, or you know, an actual true up like an, like one of these ISO you know, date stamps or something like that. The closer you stay to some of that stuff, the, the less someone else who's trying to implement a client to your endpoint has to, you know, try and decipher. They have to maybe rely less on documentation because they understand, hey, you know, if you're sending me a date, I know it's going to be in this format. If you're sending me a string, it's going to be this, you know, and there's a lot of stuff that gets the, the expectation um, of what kind of, 
stuff I'm going to have to deal with has to go away. And really you get to focus on, well, what kind of information am I able to get back from this? I, I generally look at um, these endpoints as uh, uh, data um, data types. Um, that's not the right word. Um, uh, these, these endpoints, I view them as just a, a data conduit, like, and GraphQL is moving that direction. And I did see the headline of an article just recently that was talking about that future RESTful APIs are going to be basically, they're going to start making databases just uh, API queryable. So you don't even have to learn SQL. You can just send in something and you're going to get, you're going to get the data out. And effectively that's what an API is um, with, you know, some set of rules on top of that, or maybe they're going to transform, transform, you know, attend to some appropriate code um, or make sure that some rules are applied um, in order to force it in a database. But they're really just a data conduit. Um, and if you treat them as such, I mean, I really think you're the, the, it makes your interface development easier because you're just like, hey, what's the data I get out of this thing? All right, let's build a screen for it. A lot of power, a lot of, um, a lot of upside. Uh, we talked about how how uh, tightly connected systems are are extremely fragile. This uh, developing APIs really opens up uh, the the full functionality of of your business systems of any kind of service that you're offering to a, a broader audience. And at the end of the day, uh, isn't that the objective here? Is to 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 make data exchangeable to make um, functionality available to to a broader audience to you know do more business to be more productive you know any number of, of upside benefits there um doing it uh, like we talked about um our the 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 preferred mechanism for apis right now is uh is is um leaves a lot of latitude for interpretation so it really uh empowers but imperils the developer to to build a well thought out, well designed uh, interface that's going to stand the test of time and and live into the future, uh, because uh, the system you build today has has a lot of has a lot of life ahead of it, and um, it really is incumbent upon you to 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 think about it in in broad general terms for for how it can behave going forward yeah what he said <laughs> right on so I, I hope i know this is a pretty heady topic i know um we got in kind of deep on um the importance of of developing standards and why um apis are are we we see them to be so powerful in the future thanks for bearing with us thanks for tuning in um i think we got it all yep all right. This was For Love of Code. We appreciate your attendance today. You can find us at forloveofcode.com. That's F-O-R, loveofcode.com. Find us on YouTube and all the places where you consume your podcast content. He's Tim Johnson. I'm Chris Ruddick. Be kind. Have fun. See you, everybody. Get back to work.